Um, last semester, I preached a message on peace. I don't know if you remember that or not. Um, but apparently, it shook a few relationships. So I heard about a few uh, dating couples uh, that did not survive that sermon for some reason, okay? And I'm not really sure why, Dr. Getch. I mean, I, uh, I, I preach, I didn't even, I really preached against uh, using the phrase, I don't have peace about it, if you guys remember that. And we, we kind of went through what biblical peace was. Well, apparently it didn't really uh, go over too well. So uh, this morning, I'm going to preach on separation, so um, any couples right now uh, need to start squirming a little bit in your seat to get a little uncomfortable with this message. But uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 is a great passage on some things that we should already know. And the Apostle Paul asks some questions that we should already know the answer to. But he reminds us of the importance of separation from the world. So 2 Corinthians chapter number 6 is where we're at in verse number 14, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters saith the Lord Almighty. Let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity we have every day to open up your word and to meet with you in this chapel time. And Lord, I pray that as we open up your word, that we would also open up our hearts and that you would use your word in our hearts this morning to draw closer to you. Lord, I, I don't believe there's anything new that is going to be said today in this message. But Lord, we need the reminders as we go into this semester to be separate and to be holy. And Lord, I pray that you would please help us to be able to be holy as you are holy and use us in a great way because of that. Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity to preach this morning. Please bless it. In Jesus' name, amen. When Paul entered Corinth for the first time, it was no doubt a city unlike anything he had ever seen. Paul would have entered into Corinth around A.D. 51, and at that time, the population of the city of Corinth would have been around 700,000 people. Half of that population would have just been slaves in Corinth. He would have sailed into the harbor, and that harbor is still there today, the remnants of it. He would have sailed into this Corinthian harbor that would have no doubt been bustling with activity uh, with all the trade going in and out of the city. He would have left that harbor and walked an avenue that led into the city of Corinth. And this avenue would lead with suspense into the city. It was scattered with impressive architecture all the way down. And, and it really built up into this metropolis, this ancient metropolis of Corinth. Now, Corinth was a city that was destroyed by Julius Caesar in 44 B.C. 
And so it was rebuilt after that destruction. And this city would have been a a very young 95-year-old city as Paul would have entered into it. This was fairly new compared to all of the cities around uh, in this area. This was the new city. This was uh, the city with the newest technology, the newest architecture, the newest buildings, the newest businesses. This was no doubt an impressive city as Paul walked through. As he entered the gate, he would have walked through the marketplace there in ancient Corinth. And this was not a marketplace that we usually think of selling fruits and vegetables and, you know, just going around going grocery shopping. No, this was a marketplace that has been described as a bustling commercial and industrial center. This was a place where fields and business transactions were, uh, were going back and forth between some of the wealthiest businessmen of that time. The roads would have led all the way around Corinth, but every road in Corinth would eventually lead to what was called the Acro-Corinth. Acro-Corinth was a a massive mountain that hovered over the city of Corinth. And really everywhere Paul went, he would see this mountain. And everywhere that any Corinthian or any visitor would have gone in the city, he would see this mountain uh, hovering over the city. And on top of this mountain was the temple of Aphrodite. This temple included a thousand temple prostitutes. This was a temple that had the most prostitutes in any other city in the ancient world. This was a temple where extreme, extremely wicked debauchery would take place on top of this mountain. And as Paul would go around witnessing, and as Paul labored there for a year and a half, planting this church in Corinth, everywhere he went, he could see at the top of this mountain and know exactly what was going on at the top. He would also encourage the Christians in this town to be separate from that culture. You see, Corinth did not have the heritage of Ephesus. It did not have the knowledge of Athens. It did not have the power of Rome. But Corinth was the Vegas of its day. It had all of the debauchery and worldly pleasure that the world could offer. All of the sensualism in that culture was centered around Corinth. And because of the wicked culture of this city, Paul labored with the Corinthians. And you can read through all of 1 Corinthians as Paul is laboring with them, trying to help them become separate from this evil culture that surrounded them and even was above them at all all times. This was a wicked culture that Paul labored with them to try to be separate from. And now as he writes the second epistle, which is more of an encouraging epistle, he takes a break and he reminds them of those truths that he told them in his first epistle. We see that he gives them some very clear commands. Look at verse number 14. Verse number 14, a very clear command. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Very clear. Verse number 17, wherefore come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Paul gives these clear commands to the church at Corinth, he has already addressed the gross sin that was taking place in the church in his first epistle. And now in his second epistle, he is giving an explanation for why. And that is one of the buzzwords of our day, is it not? Why? 
We, we hear a command, we hear a rule, if you will, and we want to know the reason behind it. And in this passage, Paul gives us the explanation for these clear commands. And in his own typical style, Paul is arguing his, with some serious, uh, a series of rhetorical questions. It is a powerful progression as you read through this passage. He is practically saying to the Corinthians, you should already know this, but I'm asking you these questions as a reminder. I'm asking you these rhetorical questions, not as a test. I know that you already know the answers to these questions, but I am using these questions to prove to you why it is so important to be separate from the world. So very quickly this morning, let's follow the progression of these questions and discover three warnings from the Apostle Paul. The first warning I see is about cooperation with sin. Cooperation with sin. Look at verse number 14 again. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. His first question is this. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? Now, the word fellowship here is uh, basically means participation. I know we use this word a lot in church circles. We talk about fellowship a lot. In this passage, it really means a participation. What participation does righteousness, the righteousness of God, have to do with the unrighteousness of this world? We are called to a life that is not cooperating, it, that is not participating in the sin of this world. The psalmist gives us a great uh, commitment that every man and every woman should make in this room. The psalmist says in 101.4, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. A lot of times in this world, we make excuses and we think that, oh, it's not that big of a deal. It's going to be okay. No one will ever know. And yet God has called us to a holy, sanctified life that is not cooperating and not participating with the wicked culture of this world. I was just starting out in ministry. It was my first year uh, being on staff here at Lancaster Baptist Church. And I, uh, I, I wasn't even married yet. I was just very, very green in the whole process. And I remember when uh, one day, as, as a Wednesday, I was walking up to my office. And my office was on the second floor of the administration building. And uh, I was walking through those side doors, that kind of that glass hallway there to get up to my office. Because we all know we don't walk through the admin lobby, right? Okay. Amen. So uh, we walk through the glass hallways there. And, and as I approached the door, uh, they, there was a sign there on the door and it said hallway closed. I kind of looked around. Uh, no, one's, no one's here. It's kind of a little early yet. And, uh, you know, I opened the door, kind of looked through the hallway. No one's there. Nothing's wrong. Nothing's different. It's going to be okay, Dr. Getch. I'm going to disobey the sign and walk through. And nothing happened. I mean, it was perfect. It was great. There were no consequences at all. 
Well, eventually later on in the day, I decided that I was uh, going to go back to my office after taking care of a few things to get ready for church that night. And, and uh, I came through the same door and, and there that sign was again. It said hallway closed. I opened up and I wasn't as cautious as the first time, but I still kind of looked around and, okay, all right, this is, this is okay. There's no one around. It's going to be fine. So I just kind of, you know, bolted through, you know, don't tell anyone. Okay, this is my confession time here. So eventually I went throughout my day and that was around lunchtime and, and uh, I was still getting some things ready for Cactus Kids Club that night. And so uh, I, I was around and, and then right about the end of the day where it was time to go home and get ready for church, I, I, I needed to run up to my office one more time. And so I, I, I went to that same door again and the sign was still there, but this time I didn't even look at anything. Um, I, 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 the first time I was fine. The second time I was fine. This time I just opened the door and just walked through. I did not even have a second thought about breaking the rule of that sign until I took a step in the hallway and I realized very quickly that my feet had just gone out from under me and now I had fallen face first in carpet glue. <laughs> Apparently there was a reason for that sign. And even the carpet workers were there. I mean, laying this new carpet down in the hallway and, and, uh, and they were there and they didn't even know what to do. They didn't know what to say. They just kind of looked at me as I was on my stomach, face first, hands, all everything in this carpet glue. And I can tell you, I was wearing a suit and tie. My tie was stuck to my shirt. My suit was destroyed. My, my shoes were destroyed. I tell you what, the drive home, that car still has glue in it uh, from all, just everywhere, getting everywhere. The, what an embarrassing uh, predicament. What a problem that could have been avoided if I had just obeyed. You know, there are a lot of times that God gives us commands and we don't really know why he says it, but we should just obey. And a lot of times the devil tries to get on our shoulder just like he did for that uh, predicament and say, it's not that big a deal. No one's around. No one's ever going to know. It's going to be okay. Just take that step into sin. And you may think that you got away with it the first time. And you may think that you got it away with it the second time. But God gives us a promise in his word in Numbers 32, 23... But if ye will not do so, behold, ye have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. James 1.14 tells us, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away from his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And I don't have to tell you this this morning, but let me just remind you that you have more access to filth in one swipe than the vilest of people have had over thousands of years. We can access things today that that completely destroys your future marriage, that can destroy your future ministry, that can destroy your future life, and it doesn't even take a, a thought. You can access anything and everything that the world has to offer just in the palm of your hand today. 
Let me encourage you, though, to have some discipline with that. We live in a society that we've never had this much access to sin. We've never had this much access to wickedness before. So very quickly, let me give you a few tips for technology to help you through this culture. A lot of times we we preach against sin, and that's important. But let me give you some practical ways of avoiding this cooperation with sin that many Christians are falling into. The first tip is this. Get accountability. Get accountability. There needs to be someone in your life who has access to everything that you have digitally and virtually. There needs to be someone in your life who has access to every device, who has access to every browser history, who has access to every app. Whenever that person wants to check, that you need to be ready for that. And for me, that is my wife, obviously. My wife has access to every device and every single thing that I have digitally, and she will, she can check that at any time. But you, it might be a girlfriend or a boyfriend. It might be a parent. It might be a dorm mate. It might be a roommate. It might be whatever it is. It doesn't matter. You need to have one person, though, who you are accountable to. Get accountability. Number two, know your weaknesses. Know your weaknesses. The the principle is is true. When when, uh, if someone is struggling with alcohol, they're not going to walk through the liquor aisle at the grocery store. Okay, they're just going to avoid that. If someone is struggling with that, if that was a past uh, sin that they struggled with in their life, then they're just going to stay away from that. And the the same is true digitally for us as well. You know your weaknesses. You know what you struggle with. You know that you're besetting sin. You know the temptations that, that you struggle with the most. So be real about that. Know your weaknesses and stay as far away from that as you can. I don't know if you need to delete an app this morning that you know is constantly tempting you. You just need to get rid of it. You need to know your weaknesses and stay away from those pitfalls. Number three, stay informed. Stay informed. You should never have a form of entertainment or a social media app or whatever on your phone that you do not have complete control over. I'm not preaching against specific apps this morning, but I will tell you this. It grieves my heart whenever there is an app or a form of social media that you don't follow anyone. It's just an algorithm that tells you what to watch or what to see. There is great danger in that. Don't let an algorithm, don't let a computer tell you what you should be watching and what you should be doing. You need to stay informed. My wife and I have a commitment that whenever we watch a movie, we're always going to read the parents' guide first. We're always going to know what is in that movie. Because many times if you are in the middle of a movie and something happens, you are so enveloped in the story and the power of that story that it's harder to stop or to turn it off. But we know that we are just going to be informed with whatever form of entertainment that we are going to have. We are going to know if there is something that is ungodly Godly in this entertainment or in this social media site that we are going to avoid that before the temptation is even there. Stay informed. 
It might seem silly. It might, it might seem juvenile to check a parent's guide or to delete an app. But we live in a society today where Satan is getting a stronghold in the hearts of Christians because of what is coming up on our devices. Number four, and lastly, this is very basic. Read your Bible and pray. <laughs> We keep drilling it in you, right? We keep preaching about it. We, we hear it in Sunday school, in church, in chapel. Why do we keep drilling that into you? Do your devotions, do your devotions, do your devotions. It's because if you are doing your devotions, if you are reading your Bible, if you have a walk with God, then those temptations are not going to have a stronghold on your life. I remember having a faculty meeting as we were having some training earlier last semester before you guys got here. And Dr. Shetler got up and he said this. He says, we've heard of many, even this summer, in ministry who have fallen. And I promise you that they did not have a close walk with God in their devotions. You see, you don't fall into immorality if you're spending time with God every day. And the devil will try to distract you and make you too busy or too stressed out. Or maybe it's just not a priority on your schedule. But it needs to be because God knows that if you have your nose in his word, then you are not going to be struggling with some of these besetting sins. We should not have a cooperation with this world. It doesn't matter if it's at your job. It doesn't matter if it's on your phone. It doesn't matter if it's when you're at home. It doesn't matter where you are or what you are doing. God has called us to a life of separation. The second warning I see very quickly is not just a cooperation with sin, but a companionship with sin. A companionship with sin. Paul takes it to the next level with a few of these next questions here. Verse number 14, he already asked, What fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? There should be no participation there. But then he takes it a step further. He says, and what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? And what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? All of these three questions and all of these three words are communicating a companionship with sin. A companionship with sin. The word that is translated communion here in this first question, koinonos, is literally defined as a companion and a partner. Paul's not talking about our participation now. He's talking about a companionship, a relationship, a partnership with this world. And we need to understand that if there is cooperation with sin, the next step is going to be a companionship with sin. Sin is going to be close in your heart. Psalm 26, 4, I have not sat with vain persons, neither will I go with disassemblers. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, this first epistle here, Paul is warning them not just to be, not just to be yoked with, unyoked with unbelievers, but also in verse number 5, he says, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetousness, or the extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But... 
Now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one, no, not to eat. And I don't know if you need this morning as you begin this semester to have a re-examination of your friends and your companions. I don't know if you need to start thinking about how those companions are influencing you. It doesn't matter if they're a brother. Paul is very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that if they are not following the word of God in their life, that you should be separate from them. But even deeper than just a relationship with someone or a, or a friendship with someone is the friendship and the relationship that we have with sin in our hearts. Now, my son Silas, he's one year old, and he loves Toy Story, okay? Toy Story is like, there's no movie, there's nothing that keeps his attention except Toy Story, okay? Toy Story, he will sit through the entire thing and enjoy the first Toy Story, the classic, okay? And I love Toy Story too. Don't get me started on Toy Story 3 or I'm going to cry, Okay? But Toy Story, the first Toy Story, Silas loves. And we were able, even able to take him to Disney World uh, a few months ago. And this is Silas meeting Woody. I mean, he just could not believe his eyes. Silas got to meet the real Woody, okay? And uh, he was pointing and squealing, and he just did not know what to think about Woody. Woody has become his favorite toy, okay? And... Uh, we got Woody for uh, Silas a few months before this trip, and, and, uh, and Silas loves Woody. I mean, he, he just would play with Woody all the time. He's, what do you want to do today? Oh, see, and, and Woody's just such a nice person, you know. And, uh, and he loves Woody. He would take Woody everywhere. Woody, Woody came to Disney with us that day. I mean, Woody was, is everywhere with Silas. Silas loved Woody. And Silas loved Woody so much that for Christmas, we decided we would get Woody a companion. Yeah. Now, I don't know if Silas or me was more excited about getting Buzz Lightyear, but this was awesome, okay? And I promise you, I, I could just see her all day, okay? And uh, I promise you, there was a millennial somewhere who grew up in Toy Story who figured out how to build a real Toy Story. I mean, I, a real Buzz Lightyear. I mean, I tell you what, this thing even has the karate chop, okay? Isn't that awesome? <laughs> Okay, this Buzz Lightyear does everything that Buzz does in the movie. I mean, this is a cool toy. And I let Silas play with it every once in a while, okay? <laughs> but I realized something at Christmas when uh, Silas got Buzz. Woody was sitting in a corner. Woody is not the coolest toy anymore. And I realized that I am literally watching the first Toy Story movie before my eyes. Silas loved Buzz, and Silas would play with Buzz, and poor Woody would just sit in the corner sulking because no one wanted to play with Woody. And I realized something. I realized how fickle we can be. I realized that even as adults, we get so excited about something 
and we're so passionate about something. But then something newer and brighter comes along and we're fickle. And many times Satan brings things in our lives to try to get us away from the excitement and the passion that you once had for the Lord. Satan is an expert at distracting us with things that are shiny and new and exciting. And and, and many times we're distracted from what is really important. There's a companionship there with sin. There is something that has creeped into our lives that the the, the hymn, hymn writer said very clearly, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. James 4, 4 is very clear. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And let me ask you this question this morning. What is in this world that has become your friend? What is in this world that has become more important to you? Is it a job? Is it a paycheck? Is it a relationship? Is it a person? Is there something in this world that has become more important to you than eternity and living for the things of God? And let me tell you this. This might be a struggle in Bible college, but that struggle never ends. Uh, the, the more you, you grow older and the more you have more responsibility and you perhaps have a family and all of the things that are burdening you as an adult, those types of things can, can still suck out the passion for serving God and doing what is right. Be very careful. Be very careful that you do not develop a companionship with this world and get your eyes off of eternity. There's another term in here that needs to be defined very quickly. It's this term in verse number 15. And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Belial is an Old Testament term that means uh, worthlessness, unprofitable wickedness. The, The word concord here could be translated harmony as well. Paul is saying there should be no harmony in our lives with the things of this world that are worthless and unprofitable and wicked. And all of those three terms can describe things in our lives that seep in and become a companion and keep us from doing what God wants us to do. The third warning, and we'll be done this morning. Not only is there cooperation, not only is there a companionship, but thirdly, Paul warns about a commonality, a commonality with sin. Look at verse number 16. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols. We're not talking about just cooperating or participating in sin anymore. We're not talking about a companionship or relationship. Now, Paul answers or asks this last question. He says, you should not be agreeing with sin. You should not be having a commonality with sin. Do you see the progression here? Just kind of dabbling, cooperating, becoming a companion, and now you're agreeing. Now there's an agreement. And Paul says there is no agreement 
with the temple of God and idols. Matthew chapter 6, verse number 24, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and the things of this world at the same time. You cannot have a commonality with this world if you are going to make a difference for God in your generation. There's a story of King Ahab, the most wicked king of Israel, and this guy named Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad was the king of Syria. And very quickly in 1 Kings 20, you don't need to turn there. But Ben-Hadad basically writes Ahab and says, Ahab, um, you know we're friends. Pretty much everything that's in your palace and in your kingdom is mine. Okay, thanks. And Ahab gets the letter and he's like, oh, okay, all right, whatever, you know. He gets a second letter, and Ben-Hadid says, okay, so now that you agreed to that, I'm going to send my ambassadors through your palace, and whatever they want, they're going to take. And Ahab says, okay, th this has got to stop here. And so he goes to the elders of, the, of Israel, and he says, you see what this guy is doing? This guy is bullying me. And so they go to war. And uh, they go to war, and a prophet comes to Ahab and, ah and tells Ahab, amazingly enough, that Ahab is going to win this battle. Wicked King Ahab, God is going to bless in this battle. And he does, and Ahab wins this battle against Ben-Hadad. Well, uh, Ben-Hadad and his advisors think, well, uh, we're in the hills, and God is, their God is a God of the hills, so this next battle let's have in the plains. Let's have the opposite, so, so uh, then we can go and we can win prophet comes to Ahab again and says, because they've said that God is not the God of the plains, just the God of the hills, then you're going to win this battle too. Ahab's like, yes, I'm on a roll. This is great. Amazingly enough, Ahab asks the prophet, uh, by whom? How, how are you going to do this? And the prophet says, um, you, <laughs> thou, okay, uh, you're the one that I, I'm going to use. Ahab is just, is just flabbergasted by this. Well, he wins the battle and he actually captures Ben-Hadad, but Ben-Hadad uh, is now a prisoner of war, and Ahab makes a big mistake. Ahab says, where's Ben-Hadad? They bring him to him, and he says, Ben-Hadad, behold, he is my brother. Everyone's like, what? And he says, come up into the chariot with me. And Ben-Hadad comes up into the chariot uh, with Ahab. And all before the children of Israel, Ahab is saying, what is yours is mine and what mine is yours. And Ben-Hadad, we are best of friends. And hey, I'm even going to throw in a few cities of Israel just to, just to give to you as you go home. You can have this and we're all friends. And everyone is, is standing there just so confused. Ahab has made a grave mistake. Ahab decides that he is going to have commonality with the enemies of God, the enemies that have already been defeated. And God does not take that very lightly. He sends a prophet in verse number 42, and this is what the prophet says, Thus saith the Lord, because thou hast let go out of thy hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, Therefore, thy life shall go for his life and thy people for his people. God has not called us to a life of commonality, a life of common ground with sin. There is no common ground between the temple of God and idols. And look who the temple of God is in this verse, verse 16. Paul shouts out, for ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
Paul is saying, guys, there should be no commonality. There should be no agreement between the temple of God and idols. You know why? Because you're the temple of God. Because God is dwelling in you. There should be no room for idols in the temple of your heart. Is there commonality with sin in your life? Is there common ground with sin? You know the best way to know is if there's an idol in your heart. If there's an idol that is hidden in your heart, then you are having common ground with the world. 1 John 5, 21, John finishes his epistle with a very short verse. Last thing he wants everyone to remember when he finishes this first epistle. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Now, the chapter and verse divisions are not inspired. So as we close this morning, let's look at chapter 7, verse number 1. Paul concludes this series of rhetorical questions. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse number 1, he writes, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. When's the last time that you had a good cleanse? I'm not talking about a diet. I'm not talking about a shower, though it may benefit some of the guys in this room right now. What I'm talking about is a spiritual cleanse, a cleanse of sin that has piled up, perhaps even over the break. And maybe there's this cooperation or maybe there's this companionship. Or maybe there's even a commonality in your heart. Let's take this opportunity to get right with God and to clean up. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God is not as much of a prize for this generation as it has been in the past. Let that be the prize this morning. Let's get cleaned up. Why? Because Romans 6.6, 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin.